Well, I am just back, as you know, from the Minister's Conference in St Andrews. I got the bus from Glasgow to St Andrews, and I don't know exactly how long that bus takes, but it seems to take approximately forever to get from Glasgow to St Andrews. But I'm not actually complaining that it took so long because actually the fact that the bus was so slow, and it was slow, meant I was able to see things out of the window that otherwise I may have missed. And there are some very attractive and very important sights to see in the way to St. Andrews. So I enjoyed the journey. And I'm pleased to report I enjoyed the conference as well. We have been journeying through James at a fairly slow speed, I think it's fair to say. Uh, And that is a good thing, because there are all sorts of things that we may have missed or misunderstood had we been rushing and racing our way through the first chapter of James. But I think now that we've got through the first chapter of the the letter of James, we're ready to put the foot down, to pick up the pace, to go a bit faster. Because really, if we've got, if we've grasped what James has said in James chapter 1, then we'll be well equipped to grasp what he says in in chapter 2 and indeed the the remaining chapters. He really now just uh, reiterates or unpacks and applies what he has already laid bare before us in the first chapter of his letter. So we're going to pick up uh, the pace as we come to chapter 2. Last time in James we looked at two verses, I think it was verse 26 and 27 from uh, James chapter 1. This week we look at 26 verses from James chapter 2. So we're going to read all of James chapter 2 together. I didn't look up the page number in the Pew Bible. I think it's 1214 or thereabouts. If you're reading from the Pew Bible version, it's the NIV and I'm reading from the NIV, but uh, yours is an older version of the NIV. Mine's a slightly newer version. So there are some very small variations. But it would be helpful to have to have the text uh, open before you as we look at James chapter 2 together. James chapter 2, verse 1. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes. And a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges? with evil thoughts. Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, 
Has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, you shall not commit adultery, also said, you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. In the same way was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Amen.
So we're going to divide this passage, this chapter, into three sections. I have three points, having been at the minister's assembly, or the minister's conference, I should say, surrounded by all these uh, Baptist ministers for the past number of days. You'll be pleased to know I have three points that all begin with the same letter for us this morning. So firstly, denying our faith in Christ. Verse 1 to verse 7. Denying our faith in Christ. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Notice that James doesn't just say it's wrong to show favoritism. He doesn't just say that, that, that people shouldn't show favoritism. He says that we, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, must not show favoritism. So there is something out of sync, out of line, when it comes to placing our faith in Jesus and showing favoritism, choosing to love some but not to love others. Something there doesn't work. This command is for those who take to themselves the name of Jesus. James writes to the scattered saints of God, and he says, for us, as those who believe in Jesus, we cannot live like this. We cannot live like the world. Remember, this is the, the world view that, that, that surrounds the people to whom James writes. The society is very clearly delineated into various classes. You knew your social status, and you loved your own. You knew what people group you belonged to, and you loved your own. And into that world, into that world view, James writes to those who are called to be aliens and strangers, even in their own land, for Christ Jesus. And he says, for us who believe in Jesus, we cannot live like that. And he gives an example. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you sit there, or sit on the floor by my feet, have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts. 2,000 years ago, this is written to a world that has totally transformed from the world in which we live. And yet, this illustration doesn't need much translation, does it? It's still very relevant, very pertinent. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, carrying a good smartphone, parking a nice car outside, 
And he comes with his nice clothes, his nice ring, his nice car, his nice phone, maybe his nice family. And we think, there's a man who knows how to deal with money. That could, that could be a deacon in the future. Uh, that could be a, a treasurer. Maybe this nice man has nice children. They can boost the numbers of uh, kids at ABC. And we welcome them warmly. But in comes someone a bit more scruffy. Maybe we see, though, that although they're scruffy, they're, they're, wearing, a, they're wearing a football uh, top under their, under their jumper. And we can see from the colour of the football top that it's the same team that we support. So we say, well, they're a bit, they're a bit higher up. So we give them a fairly warm welcome because we have something in common with them. And then in comes someone who's really, really scruffy and we've got nothing in common with them. And we look at them and we probably don't go up and say, you're not welcome. We probably don't go up and say, make sure you don't sit in a seat with a, a cushion underneath. We probably just turn around and act as though we haven't seen them and hope someone else deals with them. James says to us, my brothers and sisters, believers in our Lord, our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, must not show favoritism. And that's his illustration. But it doesn't just apply to when we gather together on the Lord's day. This applies to all of life. We must not show favoritism. Why? Must we refuse to live in the way in which the world around us lives? Why must we not show favoritism? Well, there are two clear reasons from the text. Firstly, the way of Jesus, and secondly, the choice of God. So firstly, Jesus, our Lord, showed no favoritism, no partiality. He is the author and the perfecter of our faith. He is the one that we have claimed to put our faith in. And he showed no partiality, no preference for the rich over the poor. Consider his genealogy that we see at the start of Matthew's gospel. It doesn't make perhaps for the most interesting of reads at first. But when we start to dig into it, it becomes incredible because as we look at the, the family trees that were of the Lord Jesus Christ, he comes from David's which we celebrate because that is the fulfillment of Scripture, that he comes from King David, the line of King David. But it's not all good and godly stock, is it? There are Gentiles and sinners in the family tree of Jesus. Consider the humility of his upbringing, not just the messy, noisy, smelly uh, stable in Bethlehem, but the, the backwater of Nazareth where Jesus spent the first 30 years or so of his life. It's not the place where uh, the religious elites gather. It's looked down upon. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? He doesn't live with the elite, the religious elite, the, the those who are high up in the, the 
social strata of the day. Consider his 12 disciples. They are not hugely impressive, are they? The tax collector, the fisherman, the zealot. Consider the heroes of Jesus' stories. Like the good Samaritan. Who would have thought a Jewish teacher, a Jewish rabbi, would ever hold up for us a Samaritan as an example to follow? They hated the Samaritans. And the Samaritans were thoroughly confused when it came to their belief in God. And think not just of the Samaritan, but think of the real-life Roman centurion who Jesus held up as an example of faith for his own people to follow. Consider his willingness to minister in Galilee, which was looked down on by the Jewish elite. Not Jerusalem, not just Jerusalem, but up in Galilee as well. And not just in Galilee, but he also ministered in Samaria of all places. He showed no partiality, no favoritism. He refused to write people off because of their background or their race or their resources. And so the question that comes to us from James this morning is, Will we follow our good and faithful shepherd as he leads us down paths of righteousness for his name's sake? Will we, like he, show no favoritism as we seek and strive to love others as he has loved us? Will we love the people the Lord brings to us? The people he brings to us, yes, on a Sunday, people that walk through the doors of this church, but the people he has brought to us in this town, and the people we are able to help beyond the boundaries of Airdrie as well. Will we love them? Will we love our neighbor as ourselves? Or will we deny our faith in Christ by choosing which neighbors we will love and which we will shun? So why are we uh, not to show favoritism? Firstly, because of the way of Jesus. Secondly, because of the choice of God. Verse 5, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith? and to inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him. But you have dishonored the poor. We could say with the Apostle Paul, couldn't we? It's interesting, James and Paul are often sort of held apart as, as, as if they're in opposition. And yet we read James and so often their mind turns to, to things that Paul has said. Brothers and sisters, says Paul in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. 
But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God that is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. And so, brothers and sisters, remember where you were, remember what you were before God called you to himself through his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We were outsiders, and we were enemies. We were from the wrong background. Maybe your parents were Christians, maybe your grandparents were Christians, but we are Gentiles. Trace your your family tree back far enough, and eventually you will find your ancestors worshipping pagan gods, not the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We were from the wrong people. And we were his enemies by nature of our behavior. All have sinned and fallen short. And Jesus reminds us that those who sin are slaves to sin. The wrong people and the wrong behavior. We were all wrong. And yet he saw us. And he sought us. And he saved us. He bought us and he brought us to himself. He washed us clean and he welcomed us into the fold, into the family of God. We can cry with the Lord Jesus Christ himself, Abba, Father, remember that on this Father's Day. God is your heavenly Father if you have placed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Realize how he has loved you and honored you. One who was an outsider and an enemy. He has made you his friend, indeed, his child. Realize how he has loved you and honored you and love and honor others even the wrong people, whoever they might be, with the wrong behavior, whatever that may be. Love them in the name of Jesus. Rich or poor, young or old, near or far, whatever people group to whom they belong, whatever club they support, whatever music they listen to, love them as you love yourself. To refuse to love is firstly to deny our faith in Jesus. Secondly, it is to depart from obedience to Christ. That's verses 8 to 13. If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as you love yourself. It's interesting that James calls this command the royal law, isn't it? Uh, and I, I asked myself the question, why, why does he call it the royal law? 
it strikes me that he has just called Jesus in verse 2, our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. So, he's presented to us a picture of Jesus in his glory. We might say of King Jesus. This is the, the royal law. This is the law that comes from King Jesus. And so, of course, our minds go back to the, the Gospels, to the time where the, the teacher of the law comes up to Jesus and he says, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and prophets hang on these two commandments. Isn't it interesting that the man only asks for one? He only wants the top. He only wants number one. He doesn't want number one and number two. But Jesus will not tease apart the first and second commandment. If you want to love God, you need to love your neighbor. Jesus will not let you love God without loving your neighbor. Jesus binds together the way that we treat others with the way that we treat Him. Indeed, the way that we treat others with the way that we treat God. If we are not loving and honoring others, we are not loving and honoring Him. Whatever we do for the least of our brothers, we do for Him. So, in what way do we break the whole law? James can uh, go some way towards un unpacking this for us. He says, if you break one law, you break the whole law. Uh, for he who said you shall not commit, this is verse 11, he who said you shall not commit adultery also said you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do, not, but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. So it's about the one who has given the law, really, isn't it? He who said. So if we don't break this law over here, but we do break this law over here, we have still said, I know better than you to the one who gave the law, haven't we? John MacArthur compares it to a window pane. He says you can break it down here or you can break it up there. Wherever you break it, however you break it, when you break it, it shatters beyond repair. We have disobeyed the royal law, the law belonging to the King of Kings and Lord of lords. We have said to him that we know better than he does. So we could take the very big laws and say, well, I've not done anything really bad. I've not committed murder. I've not been unfaithful to my husband or to my wife. Uh, you know, I've not done any of these really, really bad things. I'm actually quite good. I've just done wee, wee small sins. But the issue is 
that we have said to the Lord, even in these small sins, we know better than you. And the window is shattered beyond repair. And yet God has loved us in Christ. He has brought us to himself. He's not swept our sin under the carpet. He gave the most precious gift he could give for us. He gave his one and only son to live and to die for our sin, for our guilt, for our shame, for our rebellion against the good and gracious God who gave us life. And we who have taken Christ to ourselves have been fully forever forgiven. Mercy, verse 13, triumphs over judgment. But there's also an assumption in verse 13 that those who have been shown mercy will show mercy. Indeed, there's an assertion in verse 13, isn't there? Judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. James assumes and asserts that those who have received the mercy of God, which triumphs over judgment in Christ Jesus, will be merciful to others. I wonder if there are times in your life where you could have really hurt someone and you know frankly that they deserve it. But you have remembered how God has treated you in Christ and you have chosen to be merciful rather than to be judgmental. There should be times like that for all of us as followers of Jesus. We should let mercy triumph over judgment. So, firstly, denying our faith in Christ, 1 to 7. Secondly, departing from obedience to Christ, 8 to 13. Lastly, uh, briefly, doing the right thing. That's... uh, 14 to 26, verse 17, James says, faith, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. You say, well, what? Aren't we saved by faith alone, or by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone? Is that not what we believe as as Christians? Well, no one believed in salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, more than John Calvin. I think uh, we'll all agree to that. No one can accuse him of believing that we have to top up our faith to make it good enough with some good works, some good deeds, some good stuff, some religious stuff or some moral stuff. So our faith takes us up to here, but then we have to add to that. John Calvin No one could argue would say that. And yet listen to what he does say. He says, I wish the reader to understand that when we mention faith alone, we are not thinking of a dead faith which worketh not by love. It is therefore faith alone which justifies 
And yet the faith which justifies is not alone. Do you see what he's saying there? It's faith alone that saves us. But the faith which saves us doesn't come alone. Just as the heat alone, sorry, just as it is the heat alone of the sun which warms the earth, and yet in the sun it is not alone because it is constantly conjoined with light. So we are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves us does not come alone. It brings change. It births love in our hearts and in our lives. The sun brings heat and light. Maybe we only want the heat. So we look forward to another summer. Maybe our summer's gone, I don't know. Maybe we just want the heat. But the sun brings heat and light. We can't tease them apart. Living faith in Christ brings salvation and action. The faith which saves sanctifies. It makes us more like Jesus. It's not easy. It's not simple. It doesn't just happen like automatically. It's a battle. It's a challenge. But there is birth within us when we come to faith in Jesus, a desire to grow, a desire to know Him better desire to live in a way that will please Him. Indeed, again, on, on, on this Father's Day, there is a desire for us as children of God to please our Heavenly Father. And if there's no desire to please Him, if there's no new love, if there's no change, if we've gone forward to um, a gathering, a meeting, a, a conference or a convention, we've kind of mouthed the words to a sinner's prayer, if we've been baptized in a church like this, but there is no change, then we ought to ask questions if our faith is real faith, if it's living faith. And maybe it's dead faith. Maybe it's false faith. We ought to be encouraged. We ought to be encouraged that the Lord enables us to grow in grace, to grow in Christ-likeness, to move on in our faith, to do the right thing. We are saved by our faith. The thief on the cross was powerless to do good works, yet as he calls in the name of Jesus, Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. We don't have to earn our salvation it's gifted to us. It's a gift of grace. But when we are saved, we are changed. We are born again into this new life. We are not saved by good works, but we are saved to do good works, to bring glory to His name, to love others without favoring one over the other, without deciding who deserves it, without means-testing people as they come to us. We are called to love others in the name of the Lord who loved us so freely when we did so little to deserve that love. And so may the Lord strengthen us in His love and empower us by His Spirit to love and to honor others. And in so doing, to love 
and to honor him. He has freed us to be a people who are able to love those we could never have loved until we met him. He is freeing us from our sin, from our prejudice, and from our pride. And so live in the freedom that Christ paid such a price to gift to you and to me. Let's stand together as we sing our closing hymn when we walk with the Lord. Trust and obey. Thank you.